in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Mark chapter 12, in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 38. If you're new or visiting, the reason why we're in this text is we've been working through Mark's gospel verse by verse, and so this is where we should be. Um, Just a couple of things. One, um, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Appreciation, I just want to thank everybody for their very kind cards, words, and gifts. Uh, The cards with the words are like priceless. I have a big bag where I keep all the cards that I get from the people here, and the bag is growing, and so sometimes at night when I get afraid, I pull out the bag and I read through the cards, and they're so nice. So this year was especially nice. I just want to thank you for that um, as well. So I said a couple of things. The other thing will come later. Let's read God's word. Verse 38, chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. So Jesus is being a good teacher by pointing out false teachings. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honors, honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. The second thing I wanted to tell you is we read from this text last week, and I'll be, gosh, I prayed with a widow in our church before the service, and then I read this, I'm like, oh, she's going to be checking her purse now to make sure I didn't take anything, you know, when her eyes were closed. It's just like, could you have picked a better day, Joe? But anyway, that's them. Hopefully that's not me. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If you have the King James, James, it would be like verily, verily, or amen, amen. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. All right, let's bow together and thanks be to God for his word. Father, we pray for the help of your spirit as we open our Bibles to learn and hear from you, the living God. Thank you that in these verses you turn the values of this world upside down, what people prize you detest, exposing them, God, for what they really are. So, Father, in light of these verses, we're going to need you to kill our idols, and we're going to need you to keep killing our idols, and we're going to need you to work past any resistance we might give, and then God, animate and perfect our giving, govern our thinking, uh, giving us the grace to always set our minds on things above. And while you do that, God, let us rest in your goodness and your greatness and your promises and the promise of your provision And the love that you have given in your son, our king, who bled and died for our greed and our lust and our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, our text this morning is one of those texts which, if you just parachute down into it, leaving the context far behind, frankly, leaving the rest of the Bible far behind, you could simply say to the people, this poor lady gave all she had, and God knows, and you know, you're not giving all you have. What in the world is wrong with you? Therefore, said in a much nicer way, 
far more creative. You greedy, selfish people, start giving all you have. And by the way, just a little guilt there, there's a lady somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. She has 15 kids. She lives on pennies a day, and look at all of you. And then you would end the sermon. And if you're one of those, you might give a few tips on how the people can give all they have. And you know, knowing that most Christians, in my experience, teaches me mostly those who do not have much wealth, property, or possessions. Most Christians are of tender conscience, sensitive to that kind of talk, so they would go home, no longer relating to Christ, let me say it like this, no longer relating to God through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross and and his obedience, but rather they leave here relating to God with how much money they are giving or not giving, maybe still dealing in percentages, and therein thinking themselves a terrible child of God, saying, no wonder I don't have lots of wealth and lots of property and lots of possessions like they do, and no wonder, you know, I can't retire at 62 or 65, or whatever age you're choosing. I'm not giving all I have. When the wealthy are more than likely not giving that way either, thereby making a hash of God's intention in the text as the preacher, uh, not to be unkind, but using the intellect of a frozen pea, tries to preach it, doing a great disservice to the text, giving the dark powers of hell some cheering material because we haven't preached Christ, we've simply preached finance. Now, to be sure, we are going to learn that we ought to give like this lady gave. There's no doubt there. However, there is so much more there that underpins it all that the money part is more like a prop and a play than the primary principle that Jesus is teaching which drives this text. So, okay, you you preach that kind of give better talk. Great. Giving increases in the church for the day, for the month, maybe two, maybe three. But often it's simply just self-justifying, guilt-driven giving. There's no Christ exaltation. There's no Christ conversions. There's no heart in transformation or connecting. You just, you just give better. So, you know, the line, I gave good, so God will give me more. And your giving is just rooted then in yourself. Oh, or, oh good, I gave a few more hundred dollars this time than last time. I feel better. I feel much better as if the whole thing was about us. And what we're doing is we're just imitating the self-justifying Wealthy ruler and prayer in Luke 18. Remember them? Because they were depending on their obedience to manipulate God and receive what they value most. And what they valued most was wealth and honor. So they love their wealth and their property and their possessions and their honor more than God, but they're happy to use God by their giving to obtain those things. This is what we need to know. God did not give us money to make us feel better. Money can't make us feel better. At least it shouldn't. And we know what Jesus said about money. He said money can be like a God to us. So we cry tears of joy when we have a lot, cry tears of anger, fear, or jealousy when we have little, or some of it's taken away from us. Richard Foster wrote a book a long time ago, Money, Sex, and Power. Listen to what he says. We want to believe so badly that money, mammon, as Jesus said, has no power over us, no authority of its own. But Jesus, by naming it mammon, forbids us from ever taking such a naive view. Money can be used as a weapon to bully people, shame people, bring fear into people's lives, buy them, and give false hope to them. That's why right out of the gate, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't worry about your life. In essence, don't worry about money. You can't serve 
him and you can't serve it because it's dead at the same time. And by the way, our giving is not the key to our security or our future in Christ because Christ is the key to our security and our future. It is what Jesus is, not what we give or don't give, which can quiet the mind, give peace to the heart, stabilize us in every condition of life. You see, God does not need your money. He doesn't need mine either. He requires no supporters, no benefactors to help him establish his kingdom or help him share in his bounty, meaning there's nothing we can do or give which will add to God's riches. God owns the entire universe, everything which extends beyond the universe. Furthermore, he owns all our money too. So he's able to give it to us. He's able to take it from us without asking anything from us. So anything we have given to God, God has first given to us, you know this, like a mom who gives her little kids Christmas money to buy the family gifts. And so the kids buy the gifts and the mother's like, oh, thank you, kiddos. This is so wonderful. In the back of her head, she knows this is my money. (laughs) But it's okay. So anything we've given to God and the benefits that we've received from this, God has first given to us. And therefore, the God of the Bible is a God of grace. Now, the title of our talk, if you have a worship folder, you'll see it there, A Lady Like That. The Mind-Blowing Grace of Gospel Giving. That title is purposeful. Here's why. The lady is clearly a gospel giver. Go down this line with me. We've done it once or twice, but this will be the last time. The line which sets the context here, as you know, is chapter 11, verse 27. Remember, Jesus is in the temple. The question of the religious leaders to Jesus is one of authority. Who gave the authority to say what you're saying and do what you're doing? Remember, Jesus was tipping tables, pronouncing condemnation on their activity. So the way that they understand God in the scriptures and the way that Jesus understands God in the scriptures are butting heads. And the irony here is that Jesus is going to the cross to die for their sin. And they want Jesus to die because he is getting in the way of their sin. So Jesus responds to their authority question with his own question, which the leaders won't answer. They're afraid. They're afraid of the truth. They're afraid of the crowds. In light of this, Jesus immediately tells a parable, chapter 12, verse 1. Do you see it there? And the leaders know it's all about them. The landowner is God. He was looking to collect some fruit from the tenants. The tenants are the religious leaders. They won't give him anything, even though it's all his. So they want to keep it for themselves because they think it's all theirs. Even to the point that the landowner sends his son, his only son, that would be Jesus, and he comes to collect. And Mark chapter 12, verse 12, you see it there? They, the religious leaders, they know it's about them. Jesus is coming to the temple to inspect and collect. They have nothing to show and nothing to give. So they want him dead. But they're afraid of the crowds. So they try to build a case of why they can kill Jesus by trying to trick Jesus with trick questions. Chapter 12, verse 13, remember the question about taxes. Chapter 12, verse 18, the question about marriage and the resurrection. In the midst of all that, Jesus' answers are so good, a scribe, an expert in the law, has his own question for Jesus. It's not a trick question. It's just a question question. Chapter 12, verse 28, you see it there? Of all the commandments, 
what is the greatest commandment? Answer, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor, which we learn would include our enemy, just like we would love ourselves. All right. The two great commands God has given. And look at your text. You know, you want to say, good golly, Miss Molly, look who is loving God and loving their neighbor, more on that in a second, with all of her allness, right? All her heart and soul and mind and strength and wealth. She's just laying it all down. It's a poor widow who would be considered most, right? By most at that time that something's wrong. She's cursed by God. She sinned. Her husband sinned. That's why she's in the pickle of being poor and being a widow. So something was going on. God simply got him back, took her money, took her man. It's terrible. It was wrong. But that was a lion's share of how people thought back then. However, you see your Bible. Jesus is singing this poor widow's praise. Look at her, verse 43. She put in everything, 44. She gives all she had to God. Everything she had to live on. Not the super religious elite. Not the super rich with their big bags of money in the temple working probably off percentages. They didn't do that. But again, a poor widow. However, when I was doing my work this week, I made up a friend. He's a fictional friend. We'll call him little Johnny Smith. I hope nobody here has the name Johnny Smith. But here's Johnny Smith. Johnny Smith asked the question, okay, why would the widow give all her money to the corrupt temple? Because Pastor Joe, you said it was corrupt. I would never do that. I only give my money to good religious people doing good religious things. I would never waste my money like that. Okay, little Johnny, first of all, it's not your money. It's God. It's God's money. You're a steward of it. And it was still God's temple, so there were things taking place that needed to take place. And the God you say is your God, the God who you'll give an account to, is a God who gives the world, now think with me, common grace, a a sound biblical doctrine, God who gives the world everything it needs to live and exist. So God feeds the world. He makes it all go. And yet, we know so many people hate God and billions and billions of people, including us Christians, sin against him daily. How does he react to that? He feeds atheists. God feeds cultists. God, excuse me, but it's true, he, he feeds adult actors in the adult film industry and the recipients of that. And he feeds CEOs who love money more than him. And he feeds this factory worker who spends his check on beer and tailgating and couldn't give a rip about God. And yet, God does not say, you know, I've had enough. Not yet. I've had enough. No more common grace. No more all that stuff you need to live on which comes from my merciful hand. I'm changing to merit-based giving. Right? If you're good enough and if you give enough, then I'll give what you need. But if you don't, I won't. Little Johnny, if God gave you, based on your merit, based on your cooperation and performance to his commands, let's be honest, little Johnny, wouldn't you be doomed? Wouldn't you be poor and hungry and and dead? Little Johnny, I would. I would because I do not want what I deserve. I just want mercy. So think of the worst thing you've done, the biggest mistake you've made. How, how, how did you want others to treat you, little Johnny? How do you want God to treat you? What is the penalty for sin, little Johnny? It's death. Do you want that? Little Johnny, open up your mind and open up your heart and open up your Bible. 
The widow is being exactly like Jesus taught, Luke 6, for example. Be good to bad people, right? Be good to people who don't care and won't give back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High. That's how God's children behave because he is so kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. The widow is being good to bad people, treating them like they do not deserve to be treated because God does, God said to, and because God does. And by the way, little Johnny, that little conversation that we just had, doesn't that sort of kind of sound like the gospel? It does. So little Johnny, you give what you decide. 2 Corinthians 9, 17. You give what you decide. But little Johnny, since you're only a steward of God's, and what he's given you, you're stewarding over his money, it seems to me you should give like God would give. You mean like this widow? Yeah, little Johnny, like the widow. Now, you see, that's the trouble with tough love because so often tough love assumes that the person giving the tough love has done everything right on their their end, and they've loved perfectly up till then. Maybe I'll give you that, but probably not. Not done. My mythical character, little Johnny Smith, has a brother, Big Mike. Again, if your name is Mike, you can get me after church. Big Mike says this, well, the poor lady ought to give less because she's poor. It makes sense. She has less, she should give less. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say a thing to her about that because Jesus is not marveling at the amount she's given. He's marveling at the amount amount that she left behind. The rich gave far more than her. But the rich kept so much for themselves, their giving left them with way too much. But the poor widow, you see it there, she kept nothing for herself. And so Jesus doesn't say, oh, honey, you go get some back. Go take some back. Oh, oh, sweetheart, don't give that much next time. You know, percentage out a little better. Budget it up a little better because, honey, you need to survive. Why doesn't that happen? Why isn't that conversation there? Well, because the truth is the truth on both ends of that stick. God is so glorious. All we have should be given to him. And so she was simply giving God his due. And God is so good and so faithful that he often chooses to reveal his goodness by allowing most of the world, so think outside of our context, he allows most of the world to either live one day at a time or with a small supply so that the world can watch him care for them. Listen carefully. By nature, we think that money is a defense against chance, right? A security uh, versus the blind forces of the universe or even embarrassment. But what do we know as God's children? What does the Bible teach? There's no blind forces. There is a sovereign God who orders our life, who works out the good and the bad in it all for the good. So if we have a million dollars, Or we have like $100. What's the difference? It's hard to think that way. I get it. But that's theology. What's the difference? And remember, Christian, you're a child of God. Two verses, Isaiah 49, 23. Those who trust in me will never be put to shame. That's kind of the fear with money, right? I don't want anybody to know that I don't have a lot. My blessing is on those who trust in me. Jeremiah 17, 7. And and remember, Jesus said, look how he dresses the fields, right? And look how he feeds the birds. Remember a couple of years ago, it was around Thanksgiving time, and we preached from Mark or Matthew 5, and it was the, Jesus said, study the birds. And so we read the New York Times, and we read about the common swift. 
And the common swift is a bird that sleeps, eats, drinks, and does other stuff in the air for 10 months. And he's just gliding there in the air for 10 months. And so the food just kind of has to pop in his mouth, and it does for 10 months. He's just gliding for 10 months. Incredible. So this Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning, my wife was reading the Bible to eat. She read this text. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. It just hit me like hard. <laughs> right. Because most of the time, it's like, is, is there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be enough. And I don't want you to think that Jesus is condemning wealth. Or he's condemning surplus or abundance. Absolutely not. Because again, what God is concerned is, is what we leave behind. Not the amount we give. The sin of the wealthy Jesus is speaking of was not that they were wealthy, but that they left too much behind, and the widow gave it all. So again, just to remind ourselves, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need supporters. He doesn't need benefactors to help him establish his kingdom. There's nothing we can do or give to God which will add to God's riches. That is basic Christian truth. The only thing I would add to that is since we are stewards of what God has given Simply, we're simply giving back to God what he's already given to us. We're going to give an account with what we've done, with what we've been given. And all of our individual contexts, according to his standards and his context that he put us in. So don't try to judge other people is what I'm trying to say. Let the judge, 1 Corinthians 2, wait to the last day. He'll make it all right. That's number one, a line to go down. Number two, a group to watch out for, verse 38, because that's what Jesus said. You see it there? Well, why should we watch out for them? Well, obviously, they love money, and they love the prestige, which they think that would come with money. Verse 38b, they like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted in with respect in the marketplace, important seats in the synagogue, places of honor in the banquets. They devour widows' houses, make lengthy prayers. These guys will be punished severely, most severely. Now, what marks these scribes is fairly obvious because by nature, every human being struggles with these things. We struggle with things like personal honor and greed and hypocrisy on some level. For example, they're fishing for personal honor. Isn't that verse 38b? They're dealing with the sin of pride, walking around in flowing robes. Now, this is not a comment on the style of dress. Rather, it's a comment on why they dress that way because you can do what they're doing, dressing up or dressing down. It doesn't matter. They just wanted to stand out they wanted to look like they know so that people could know they know. So the clothes they wore were meant to grab a look, to push up their status. So it could, you know, it could be dress, but it could be cars and houses and locations of houses, other things, so that we get them and we're like, hey, we got it going on because we have them. That's what they were doing. The point in, in this is that the flowing robes is, hey, everybody, look at me. Hey, everybody, pay tribute and honor to me. Obviously, something's going on really good this way because look at me. Verse 38c, and they like to be greeted in the marketplaces. Right? Pastor. Hey, pastor. I was thinking about my dad. He's such a lovely man. He would take me in the summertime with him to work on Saturdays, and we would go into the places where he would work, and there would be people there, Mr. Franzone, Mr. Franzone, and I would just get such a kick out of that. That's my dad, Mr. Franzone, Mr. Franzone. See, at eight years old, I was being a little prideful little sinner there. It's terrible. The desire for reputation with these men was more important to them than to help others know, trust, and serve the living God correctly. Now, 
That's how they operated in the street. And when they went into worship, verse 39, same operating procedure. They liked to have the most important seats in the synagogue. And so the most important seats in the synagogue were the seats which were in the front, and it was in front of a container which was placed the law of God, the Torah, and the seats did not face in the same direction as the congregation, but the seats looked out upon the congregation. So that when that individual sat there, they could see the whole congregation. They knew that he was in the seat of prominence. And they knew, knew that he could survey them. But also that little rascal also knew because he was in the seat of prominence that the people could survey him. See, they're looking at me again. Feed their pride. And of all places, the house of God. The one place you would think, like, come in humble. They're not. It's the same as Jesus said with weddings and feasts and parties. They want the best seats. Why do they want the best seats? Because they want all eyes on them. That's how they lived. They would manipulate to get all eyes on them. That's what they're doing. And so Jesus said, watch out for them. I think if Jesus was in our times, he'd say, watch your back. Watch your back with these guys. Personal honor. Secondly, greed, verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And no mistake, there is a ferociousness in their behavior. It's almost a type of kind of masochistic behavior because they do not want to leave anything behind for these widows. That's the sense of the Greek word. It's a compound word, and there's a word in front of it which is an intensifier. So they like to devour everything. Think of a beastly thought there, and they don't want anything left behind. They want to humiliate the widow by taking everything that she has. Now you think about widows, but you also should think about widowers. It happens to men as well, right? Most of us men are at sea without our wives. So that was their day with widows. It could be our days on, with widowers, so they just wanted her money through suggestion. Hey, lady, I mean, it's kind of, I have to say it. If you're nice to me, Miss, Mr. Holy Man, then I'll be nice to you. And, and, and I know God, and I have a way with Yahweh. So you give to me, and you pray. I'll pray for you, and you're just going to be blessed. Sound familiar? <laughs> and then they did that until verse 42. There was nothing but a poor widow left. Do you see that? Third word, hypocrisy. They loved honor. They were greedy. They covered their greed by playing the role of a very concerned, very loving, caring, religious person. Verse 40b, for a show, they like to make lengthy prayers. So someone said it like this. They were praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. They were praying on widows by actually praying, P-R-A-Y, for widows. That was their modus operandi, right? A holy thing, praying to a holy God And by golly, they're using it for their own gain. Terrible. They're going to feather their own nest. They're going to line their own pockets. And they're going to use a poor widow, or maybe even a rich widow, to advance their own agenda. Now, this is what is so terrible beyond the obvious. The scribes were experts in the law. The law of God said, pay special attention and give special care to widows. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, chapter 26, verses 12 to 13. Widows were supposed to be able to share in the tithes and offerings which were given to God by the people. And they were supposed to share special gleaning privileges, Deuteronomy 24, in the fields at harvest time. But at this time, it was the complete opposite. Jesus is pointing this out. 
And he's warning his listeners. The widows in Jesus' time, they were not receiving the full protection and the full privileges and the full monies which the law of God commanded that they should have. Quite the opposite. There was no equality there. There was no justice there. And those who were to be the very stewards of God's law, men who were supposed to teach it and give themselves to it and make sure that the people applied it, they were not. They were actually behind the thievery. So they were defenseless, the widows. They were open to danger. And by golly, it was these religious people, the scribes, the guardians of God's law, who were doing it all. I hope this is not boring you because, you know, cool, you got a husband, cool, you got a wife, but we, we have a lot of widows here in our congregation. A lot of widows, and I'm sure they get the calls and the people trying to take from them and all the little schemes. Jesus says they will be punished most severely. Most severely. Nobody's getting away with anything. I was doing my work. I found out in 2013, Conwell uh, Theological Seminary did a study uh, on fraud in the church. Two places stood out. I won't mention one, but I will mention the other. The Prosperity Gospel Churches, Billions of dollars collected with fraudulent intent. Listen to what one of the experts said. This is uh, Dr. Johnson. A theological message, the prosperity gospel, a theological message that implies that God wants you to be rich has taken root. A church can raise a lot of money when parishioners are encouraged to give more for their own good. Isn't that the way it works? You give and you do and you, and then God's going to be like, Pow! Who would not do that? I'm going to say it twice later on. Who wouldn't do that? Number one, a line to go down. We needed to understand the context. Number two, a group to watch out for. These evil scribes. Greedy. Number three, and finally, a lady to live like. Verse 41, you see it there? Jesus sat down with the guys. There's a whole group there. Rich people there. Large amounts. In comes a poor widow. Two very small copper coins. Only worth a few cents. Jesus calls the guys. Guys, look at her. Look at her. She put into the treasury more than everyone else. Why, Jesus? Well, they gave out of their wealth. She gave out of her poverty. She laid it on the line. She put in everything, everything she had to live on. That is a pen portrait of Christian discipleship. Jesus said the most important command was what? Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor just like yourself. That's exactly what this poor widow is doing. She is an example of that kind of love. She is loving God and she's loving others with everything she has to live on. That's what she's doing. Everything she has to live on. Her life, now listen carefully, her life is not dictated by the pleasures of the world. That's an easy one. But her life is also not dictated by the tragedies in her world, right? Because that's usually how it goes. Either the pleasures of the world call our shots or the tragedies of, the, of our world. No, her life is being dictated by the word of God. What did God say? Love me with everything. Love people like you love yourself, including your enemies. That's what she's doing. So she's like an awesome lesson for the 12. Guys, this poor widow, she's incredible, right? And by the way, it's actually taking place in what was called the court of women. That's where the treasury was located. So just picture this in your mind for a second or two. 13 huge offertory boxes. Nine of those boxes were to pay the temple tax. Four were to contribute to things like um, incense and uh, offerings, any kind of burnt offerings, and so they had the shape of large trumpets. And so the offerings, verse 41, are thrown into the trumpets. And you understand. So as the money cascades in there, uh, the sh- uh, shopper off, I think is how it's said, 
the louder the noise, the more money that's going in, right? So just picture yourself, you're at like the YMCA. There's a bunch of old guys sitting at a table, and they're watching everybody going to and fro, and they're talking about them. That's what it was. There was like seats, and people would just watch, and the people would give. Here was their big bag of money. There was no dollar bills. It was coinage. And the silver and gold coins, they sounded lovely. And all of a sudden, here comes this little Poor widow, verse 42, drops in two of the smallest coins in circulation, leptins, literally a thin one. So if she had any dreams about resting and retiring and settled down, settling down with her husband, that's gone. But it doesn't change her. She lives on the other side of the tracks now. She has no social security, no pension, nothing. She has no guarantees of a next meal. Two pennies, she gives, balance zero. He puts in everything. Why did you do that? Well, one, God said to. And two, I trust him. Okay, she had two coins. Why didn't she give one? 50% is a lot more than those guys were giving. Well, I would like to trust God. We've been around a long time, more than likely. Verse 43 The others give out of their wealth. They lose nothing. She gives out of her poverty everything. She loses nothing. Do you think that the rich guys were thinking about eternity and they were thinking about their stewardship and all the rewards will be given? Or do you think they were tied to earth? Do you think their mind was on earthly things and not on heavenly things? I'll let you decide. Two questions and we're done. Are you a giver or taker? Verse 38 describes the takers, doesn't it? And sadly, they're religious. So they got the mechanics down. That's pretty easy. The contrast, contrast of the worship of this widow and the false religion of these scribes and the rich is that they use their religion for their own ends. They use their religion for its own glory. They want glory, honor, and wealth, and security. And that is an end to itself. And they're even doing it under the disguise of religion. That's the way many teach it now, right? I said I'd repeat this, but this is what they say. If you give and you give with faith, it's going to come back in spades. You give 100 to God, he might give you 1,000, he might give you 10,000. Now again, who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't do that? And on the rich, listen to Richard Baxter, Puritan from a long time ago. The hypocrites give God what their flesh can spare. He will obey no more than his personal welfare can stand. That's true. That's true of this text. Listen to J.C. White. If a person is growing in wealth, nothing but constant giving can keep him from growing small in soul. Right? Nothing but constant giving can keep them from growing small in soul. What's small in soul? Well, I would just say something like, your whole world revolves around you. And anything you do for God is always tied to you. See, the rich gave to check the box. It's not worship. It's not sacrificial. It's just personal. The widow obeys two great commands. Love God and gave him everything she had. And she loved her enemies. Those who were devouring widows' houses. So she actually gives three times. Number one, she gives to the temple proper. Everybody benefits. Number two, the religious thieves benefit from her giving. Number three, she doesn't get any help from them like she's supposed to give, which the law said she should give, 
and she still gives all she has. I wrote in my notes, what a lady. What a lady. You know when you're real late at night and you're talking to your husband, your friend, and you're like, when you go to heaven, who's the first person you want to see? And usually somebody says, Paul or, or Moses. I want to see this lady. I want to see this lady. Can I tell you how I pictured it? I'm going to, Lord willing, I'm going to get to heaven, and there she is. And I'm going to sit down, and she's going to hold my hand. That's how I pictured it. And she's going to say, sweetie, right? Because she's a poor widow. Sweetie. Let me tell you what was going through my mind when all that happened. And I'm just going to go like, oh, I never want to leave you. <laughs> I just want to stay with you. Can we do this for like 10,000 years? It's beautiful. And you know, I may sing her praise, but the question is, will I give like she gave? Right? Will I give like she gave? Will you give like she gave? Wouldn't it be great? If someone did that today, if it's done right, nobody would know except God. Nobody would know except God. All right. So Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to follow me, don't look like the rich. Don't look at the scribes. Look at this poor widow. And for some of us here, like every other church, there are some of us who we leave way too much in our giving to ourselves. Our lives bear this out. The structure of our lives bear this out. And, and the judgment will point it out. And God's grace is so wonderful. Two things. Number one, when you get to heaven, and some will get rewards, some will not or get less. But the beautiful thing is you're going to be in a glorified state, and you're going to be so happy that the people are doing so well because heaven won't be any less heaven for you. Is that not grace? Can you scroll your way through this world? I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give, but grace is going to save you? And you're not even going to be able to say anything except praise Jesus. This is so wonderful. Heaven is so great. I'm so happy that you're in charge of 10 cities and I'm only in charge of one. It's going to be great. That's the first thing. Second thing, it's not too late to change. It's never too late to change. The poor widow trusted in God more than she trusted in her wealth, and that's what made her a giver. Right? She remembered her covenant promises. She remembered that there was going to come a guy named the Messiah, right? Remember verse 35? I mean, this had to be going through her head. The context fixed it perfectly. There's a Messiah who's coming. And this Messiah is going to bear in my body, Isaiah 53, in her bo- his body, excuse me, all my sin. So my transgressions, my iniquities, the punishment that, that will bring me peace is on him. And by his wounds, I'm healed. So her husband was dead. She gave to the one who paid for her sin and opened up the door to get her into eternity with God. You see, that's the grace of gospel giving. It was just flowing out of her. She was so thankful and she was so determined that she would be a giver and not a taker. Now let's say there's someone that's very poor. The widow would sit down with that person and say, Listen, I understand how hard it is for you not to give, but don't be like that. You've been rescued from your sin. Come on, keep the promises of God in your mind. Come on, come on, give. Give like I gave. That's the first question. Are you a giver or a taker? Second question, okay, this is the reality question. How's it going to be for her after she gives all she had to live on, right? So she put it all in, that's Sunday. He wakes up Monday morning. What is it going to be like? <laughs> well, can I ask you a question? Do you think for a moment that the God who owns all things will not meet her daily needs? 
I mean, he just put her in the place, one of the highest places of praise, right? This is the, the, one of the greatest acts of worship that has ever been done. This is one of the greatest financial transactions that have ever been done. Do you think, do you actually think that somehow God's going to not let it go? And let's just say this. Let's say it was her last day. Let's say she gave, she dies the next week, the next day. I don't know. What a way to go. Last act. A monumental act of worship and obedience. And then I die. That's why churches for the past 2,000 years and until Jesus returns is going to keep singing this lady's praise. She gives proportionally, not percentage. So let's say there's a billionaire. Billionaires are doing this a lot. They give a million dollars. A million dollars, if you're a billionaire, a million dollars is only one-tenth of one percent. The widow gives 100%. She gives with Christ in view. Finally, finally, right? So let's say it's just a few pennies. Let me close with this story. In 1890, Philadelphia, this is a true story. There's a poor little girl. She stands outside the church. She's dressed in rags. She was crying. She was crying because the Sunday school room was too full. It was packed full of kids. There was no room for her. She can't get in. Dr. Russell Conwell, pastor there, saw her, grabbed the little girl's hand, said, honey, come with me, and begged for the space for her. They gave her the space, and he said, please let her come every Sunday that she comes. Get her in there. So the girl was touched, as you can imagine. She began to think of other kids that she knew who needed to be in that Bible class. Two years later, she dies. Her parents asked Dr. Conwell to take her funeral. Because of his kindness to her, there was a relationship there, he gladly agreed. And this is what they said. When they moved her body, there was a filthy old purse with 57 cents and a note scribed in childish handwriting which said, This is to help build the little church bigger so more children can be taught there. So for two years, 1890, she saves 57 cents. What do you think happened? Well, the same thing happened to me when I read the story. He breaks down in tears. He took the note, begged the congregation to build a bigger space, which they did. But the story's not over yet. Word got out about the girl. Word about her life and her story spread A real estate agent goes to Dr. Conwell's office. Two years later, he offers him a huge piece of property. He says, look, that's really nice. We can't afford that. He goes, oh, no problem. I'm going to sell it to you for 57 cents. They bought the property. (laughs) And this is what they built. Temple University, Temple Baptist Church, the Good Samaritan Hospital, and a Bible training school for the children of Philadelphia, all of which you can read of in the book Acres of Diamonds by Dr. Conwell. The little girl gave all she had. Might have even taken her life. I don't know. The amount is not the issue. What we keep for ourselves is, the widow gave all. Bad people will be helped. They're going to be some of the benefactors. What is that? What is that? Well, it's the title of our talk, subtitle, The Mind-Blowing Grace of Gospel Giving. The Mind-Blowing Grace of Gospel Giving. Let's pray.
We'll just take a moment to think through what's been said. Father, we thank you so much for our entry into this world. And every day you have fed us so well. I mean, I can't think of probably anyone here who's, who has not had a meal when they've needed it and not had a bed to sleep in when they've needed it and, and had care that we don't deserve. At least I can speak that for myself. And you keep giving, God. We sin and you keep giving forgiveness. We sin and, and rebel and you keep giving love and you keep making the world go so that we can go. And it's a beautiful thought. It's very humbling, God, when we think it through. Your grace is more profound than what we ever imagined. So I pray for the grace, beginning with myself, to give like this lady gave. Please don't let fear or pride get in the way of giving the way that you would like us to. We'll leave that up to you, and we'll trust you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll hang around here if you have a question or two. There's a peace I've come.